Good morning, one and all. It's good to see your faces today on this cold front Sunday. Anybody, anybody feel that this morning? You walk out and you're like, wow, there's a cold front. I'm going to reach for my Canada goose. You don't even know what that is, do you? Y'all don't have kids like mine. Mine travel the world and are all fashionable and things, and so I have to learn about things like $9,000 jackets called Canada gooses or whatever. So, Well, welcome to ANC today. If I don't know you personally, if we have not met or if you bump into me in public and, it, and I get weird, um, I, I have a thing with... Names and faces. Like, I can remember faces forever, but names are just instantly gone. It's worse than Teflon, y'all. It's the, hi, Scott, good to see you. It's this new, um, like, this aluminum stuff, this, like, super expensive stuff, you know, that everybody's cooking with these days. Nothing sticks to it. It happens to me on the regular in, in Austin where I bump into someone and they look at me and, they, and I'm just expected to know their name and I just am going to disappoint you. I'm so sorry. Some of you have been coming a long time and it's like I'll introduce myself for the third time to you. It's just a dumb little show we do here. It's not meant to make you not feel connected. It's just that my hard drive is full. It's full of all sorts of things I want back. We talk about this all the time, like the lyrics of country songs from the 90s. I want all that hard space. I put in a request and iTunes, back, how I listened to it back then, is... Uh, they're not responding. So at any rate, if, uh, it would be good to meet you face-to-face. If not, join me at ABGB, and we can have some good conversation. So welcome this morning. I want to take a couple of minutes to plug something special that's coming at us, and it would have been an announcement, except I wanted to build it in here. So Dana Williams, you might know her. She's one of our board members. You, you will have seen her in this space. Uh, she actually makes it to church living in Sugar, uh, uh, Sugarland, south of Houston. She actually makes it to church more frequently than some of you guys do, and she drives all the way in from Houston. But Dana serves on our board, specifically tasked with helping us integrate our online and our in-person, so our in-town and our out-of-town sort of constituencies or parts of our body. So here's what happened during COVID. We went live stream only. And when we did that, we grew a bunch of people in a bunch of different places. And we knew that when we could open the building again, what would end up happening is, is we would forget those people who are connected from all these other places. And then we would just go back to doing this. And so one of the smarter things we did during COVID as a board is that we invited Dana to step in and help us not lose track of the people who are coming from these little cameras and then pipe this in every week. It may be a surprise to some of you. It's not a surprise to me, but it may be a surprise to you that there are actually cities that don't have churches like this. In fact, there's, if you were to say what church in America, I, if I could move to any city, I could probably recommend Raleigh, North Carolina, probably Portland, Oregon, maybe a church outside of Dallas. That's about as many churches as I know that are like us. And so some people have found this to be a life-saving thing and it's setting them free. And so they, they pipe it in, they watch it regularly, and they're part of who we are. So we're planning in a thing, the best idea that Uh, Dana has been able to come up with to sort of integrate those two things. We're calling it Coming Home Weekend, and it's the first weekend in November. So here's the invitation. It's not just for out-of-towners. They're going to travel in by trains, planes, and automobiles, right? Some of you are gone now. You're back in the movie movie land. They're going to travel in to get to know us. And so what, what I would love for us to do, and here's the invitation, let's open our homes, let's open our hearts, let's open our social calendar as we get to know these people that call this their local church. I know it sort of defies reason, but it is a different day, and I'm the kind of person who wants to hold the model very, very loosely. And if there are people in the UK or people in New Zealand or people in Peoria or Connecticut or Washington State that, that want to be part of what we do, I say bring it on. And so they're going to come and meet us. It may not be a ton of people, but they will be significant people. Let's be part of that. So imagine a, uh, some random get-togethers at public establishments. Imagine a pipes and porter for, for those who love 
whiskey and tobacco and all of those derivatives. Uh, imagine an ANC kids event designed to, for the kids that are coming with their parents. Imagine an 04 Center show, obviously open to the public, but also special so that we could all be part of that. Imagine that all wrapped into a weekend. Now, if you're an introvert like me, you're already panicked. You already feel tired. There will be a Monday after the Sunday, and we'll all be able to hive down and go down into our little, our little uh, you know, meerkat burrows, and we'll be able to nurse our extreme extroverted weekend. But it's going to be a great opportunity. I'm super looking forward to it. Dana has worked really, really hard on it, and you're going to start to see some sketches of what a calendar might look like. If you have a home with extra space, let's share it. If you've got uh, the capacity to welcome somebody into your home, let's do that. So Dana and Amy Lambert and Tara Brimberry have been working on this for a long time, and I'm looking forward to it. So there's that. There's my little announcement. So we're taking our time still with the question of why Jesus? It feels like a nice change of scenery or a change of pace, you might say, after about eight weeks over the summer in the Old Testament. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back on Spotify and you can catch yourself back up or on YouTube or Facebook or whatever else. But it feels like a nice change of sort of change of gear. We're tracking along now with the lectionary, which happens to drop us right about in the middle of the book of Luke. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to be honest with you about something. I generally don't have an agenda or a stated outcome when I speak to you on a Sunday morning. Like, I'm not trying to move you any particular place. I'm not trying to convince you of any particular thing, except now. I'm going to be clean with you. I'm going to be clear. I hope that over the next several weeks and where we've been the last two weeks, my goal is that you fall back in love with Jesus. Maybe for you it's the first time, and that would be really exciting. I can't remember that long ago. Most of us can't. Maybe for you it's the second time. Maybe the first round... Uh, ended up in trauma and it didn't work well. Maybe it's your last time. Maybe this is your vow. If this doesn't work out, I'm never doing this again. But the bottom line is I want to be clear. I want to sort of guide a conversation in which we might rediscover a love of Jesus in the end. So let's turn our attention back to the chapter, back to the book of Luke, chapter 14. If you were carrying a Bible, if you opened it to the section that begins in verse 25, it would read the cost of discipleship. And it reads this way. Again, this is Luke writing about the life of Jesus. He writes, Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the crowd, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. And I imagine that was about how thick the silence was after he said that sentence. He goes on, Whoever does not carry the cross, which would have been a panic evoking symbol in the minds and in the imagination of a Jew of the time. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower, verse 28, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build something and was unable to finish it. Verse 30, or what king going out to wage war, now he changes his metaphors, against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to, tr- to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33, so therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Now, who has the microphone? Who's going to be filled this morning? You got it, Trey? Got your sneakers on? Without thinking too much about it, I want to hear from you. What does this passage evoke in you? I would call it a pericope, but I'm told by non-literature majors that they don't know what that word means. You can just call it a passage. It's a pericope, whatever. English majors in the room unite. 
How does this strike you? How does this land on you? Some of you are literally Googling the word pericope. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds. It means a, a group of sacred text. How does this, what's your first reaction to this story of Jesus? Anyone? Yeah, right here. You guys are so disciplined, you wait. So good, yeah. I'm a little stuck on the first part where it talks about hating father, mm. mother, brother, sister, etc. Because um, yeah. it seems like, you know, don't do that. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what you would put after a sentence like that that you wanted anyone to listen to because you pack that as your first punch and you've just lost your crowd. Yeah, hate is, is the part of the, the, the struggle there. What else? What's the first thing that strikes you? There's no right or wrong answer. Just what strikes you here? Over here, up front. Try behind you. Yes. I kind of think of just how radical he was yeah. during this time and what a radical thing yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, and it makes me think of how he kind of humanizes mm-hmm. the parts of us that we don't like to shed light on, mm. but that are still a part of us. Interesting. Yeah, so you're, you're, moving, you're moving ahead there. It's interesting. You know, it would have been somewhat expected of a rabbi of Jesus' time to show up and say something super shocking and then back into a teaching. So like, hey guys, the whole world is going to end in about 10 minutes. So let's talk about, let's talk about how we're, you know. So, so part of what's lost on us is that radical sort of, let's get some thinking going. Let's get an audience. And so maybe part of what feels so shocking about this is the fact that that's not really how we do things anymore. But, but yeah, he's going to take us somewhere deep. Someone else, what else? What's your first reaction to this back here? That was a half-raised hand. That was kind of like, <laughs> I think I want the microphone. <laughs> um, in verse 27, whenever it talks about carrying the cross and following me, those who don't do that can't be my disciple. I feel like for me, that verse in particular, there has been a lot of shame around that, mm-hmm. and people just take it out of context and use it. Well, if you're not devoting your entire life and everything you do. And I feel like there's just a lot of shame around that uh, you know, specific it's verse. It's so interesting that you point that out because that was a big thing in the back of my mind all week. And I kind of didn't, I kind of wrote that out because I sometimes wonder if I'm uniquely just sort of tormented by all of those youth events and all of those missions trips and all of that stuff. But I have a feeling we, we limp similarly, if you know what I mean. What would that have meant? Don't, don't leave the microphone. Stay with Sarah for a second. What do you think of in terms of shame, what was, the, what was the zero sort of sum arrangement here as it was taught to you in youth group? Can, can you get words around it? And Jake's shaking his head next to you, so you're implicated too, bro. Um, I just think that maybe it was, I felt, well, I'm a three on the Enneagram, so mm-hmm. I always feel like this, but even more so, it's, I was never doing enough. Yeah. to be a follower yes. of Jesus. And yes. so yes. obviously we don't have to do anything to be a follower of Jesus, but we're ingrained with this. You have to do this and this and this, and then yeah. you're a true disciple. Yeah. So, do you oh, he's going to step up to the mic. No, yeah, I was gonna say, it felt very performance-based, and I was always like comparing myself to what other people were doing. Was I doing enough of what they told me instead of focusing on like the core of the gospel, which is what really matters. Right. And so obviously this isn't, 
what I believe what Jesus wanted. And so, like she said, people just took it and ran with it. Yep. And it manipulated like our way of thinking, especially when we were kids. Yeah, so, so true. Thank you. Anyone, re- let's just do this. We'll just answer as a group. Does that resonate with you a little bit of all of that? F- look at this. Look at, y'all, we're not alone. <laughs> Thank you, Trey. It's, it's uh, I remember these words that would have been encouraged. We would have been encouraged to scream them in stadiums as we ran to the altar. We were, we were encouraged to scream the words, I want the cross. And so this conversation, which will not end up being about sin, you guys, hang on with me as we ride through it, was made to be about failing Jesus by disobeying, and it was almost always, you know, the usual drink something, smoke something, or sleep with someone, right? And so we were told that if you ever, like, ah, that you can't be a disciple, and so it's, it, what a distortion of a beautiful text that ends up not being about that at all. But I'm so glad to know that I'm not the only one who still limps because of those things. Such a good thing. Thank you guys for sharing. It's harsh stuff, no? It's a bit of a harsh teaching if you listen to it on the face of it. And I'm a dad, so I find myself wondering, like I would have asked Jesus when he opens up and says, hey, unless you hate everything and everyone in life itself, you can't follow me. I would have been like, have we eaten today? Like I've got a granola bar here. Are you feeling like, is your blood sugar a little bit low? Or maybe, did you drink water that I, did something happen at school today? You know how we do as parents, right? I would have asked him some of these questions. Maybe, maybe you have an earache. Maybe there's a toothache. Maybe, Jesus, are money matters like weighing on your heart? Are you, are you sort of, you know how those do, right? Like what happens to our fluffy Jesus? No precious moments going on here. Therefore, no Christian bookstores open for business. Where is the guy who says, let the little children come unto me? Where's the sweet Jesus dressed in chacos in a terry cloth bathrobe with a cotton ball beard? You know the one. Where's that Jesus? You know, if I'm, if I'm totally up front with you, I would say this is one of those passages that I would have just skipped right over. I would never teach on this if the lectionary didn't compel me to do so. You see, because I can't square this Jesus easily with the Jesus that I know best. You know the one, the one I love the most, the soft one, the tender one, the one that always knew what people were thinking, the one who could softly land the outcast and welcome in the insider as well. But as it turns out, there are plenty of Jesuses to go around. And today's Jesus is a little bit unhinged and he's starting to scare the crowd. He's undoing stuff, it seems like. Important stuff, too. Hate your kids, hate your wife, hate your family. He's undoing some family commitments. He's undoing social assumptions. He's tearing something down. But why, I would ask, if I was in his train that day, I would say, why the family? Why are you picking on the family? What is it about the fabric of our loyalty to our family that is being called into question? Well, Caesar has a theory about this passage, and it has to do with what was going on between the time when Jesus would have given this discourse and when Luke would have written it down. And I'll get to that in a minute, but first, a reminder. Whenever we hit something like this, a difficult passage like this, I just want to remind you, there's multiple ways to read it. Remember Rabbi Blumhoff's encouragement? There's at least four different sort of uh, layers to a text. And so when we hit something awkward like this, it's a good thing to just stop, drop, and roll and just figure out where do we need to dig? That's going back to a previous career of mine. Where do we need to dig here to find sort of how to make meaning of this? Let me just ask some questions with us and for us. Do we really think Jesus is condoning hatred of our family members? I mean, some of us dislike our parents. Some of you dislike your parents. And it's easy enough to diss your siblings, but hate your spouse and your children? I don't know about that. Really, Jesus? Do you think that this is Jesus sanctioning hatred of life itself? Wouldn't we say a a valid way to summarize his teaching and ministry would be the opposite of that? It doesn't seem very likely that Jesus is actually saying, hate everyone around you. I think there's something else going on here. I mean, I guess we could say something maybe got lost in translation. What does the word hate in Greek actually mean? It seems like a good place to begin. 
Well, the original word in Greek would have been the word misio. And you know what it means in English? Ready? Wait for it. Hate. That's what it means in English. No nuance whatsoever. It actually means hate. Even if you tug on that word and you try to deflate it as much as you can, you could probably only move its definition as far back as despise or dislike or possibly love less than other things, which feels a whole lot nicer than hate, if I'm honest. You see, when Matthew recalls this teaching, he wrote after Luke wrote, that's what he does. He interprets Jesus as having said something more like, unless you love Jesus more than these other things in your life, you can't be a disciple. That sounds a lot softer to me. But no, Luke opts for the word hate. You have to hate the other things in order to travel in the entourage of this rabbi. Well, maybe Luke got it wrong. Maybe Luke was misremembering in his old age. But here's the problem. If, If this was the only spot that Luke remembered Jesus talking or taking aim at our love of family as somehow troublesome or antithetical to discipleship, then we could ignore the word hate altogether and just say maybe it was Jesus on a cranky day or maybe Luke was being, his memory was cloudy. But that wasn't the case here, and this wasn't the only time that Luke remembers Jesus speaking like this. This little challenge in chapter 14 falls right in the middle of a whole series of hard sayings that, when you add them all together, can only be understood as Jesus intentionally toying with traditional family values. And what a moment to do this. Luke makes it clear, right as he sets up the story, that the crowds were swelling, Jesus was beginning to trend. Now was not when to go to the hard places, right? That is to say, right at the wrong time, Jesus begins to thin the crowd by reading the small print. And I just want to remind Jesus, Jesus, it's small print for a reason. You're not supposed to read that in public. That's the whole point. And what is that small print that Jesus seems to be leading with? Well, it's simply this. There's going to be a cost related to following me if you can do it. And so what is that cost to be numbered among the disciples of Jesus? Oh, just everything. Love of family, love of life itself. Love of all your worldly possessions. All of it somehow now must fall away if discipleship is your goal. Who talks like this? What sort of a crowd builder, movement starter, what sort of a revolutionary trying to move people in a direction talks like this? Isn't faith supposed to make your family better? You see, people don't misunderstand Jesus just because they're daft. His sayings are actually really, really hard. His shock jockey talk is deeply, deeply unsettling. I imagine a lot of what he taught to was silent crowds. But this perhaps, this is this image of Jesus, this particular Jesus which Luke remembers in his old age, he conveys to us with a burning passion. There may be a reason for this related to the timeline of all of these things, the, this, the gap between the discourse and when Luke writes. And this gets us back to Caesar's theory, and here's what it is. Don't forget that Luke doesn't write his gospel until 60 to 65 years after Jesus floated away on the clouds, and that would matter in the end, because by the time Luke writes to encourage young Christ followers and communities around the teachings of Jesus that were all made of former Jews, by the time Luke takes pen to parchment, the social fabric of these families was now being challenged, you see. At least for these folks, to remain faithful to the teachings and the ideas of Jesus would mean losing connection to their Jewish families increasingly over time. In fact, one of the main reasons that Luke may write in the, in the first place is, is to offer comfort and some, some kind of a soothing word to those ongoing social calamities that the families of the friends of Jesus had suffered. You see, Jesus was a Jew, but by the twilight of Luke's life, 65 years later, it was no longer easy to remain a Jew and remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus. I wonder if that makes sense. 
You see, Jesus didn't start a new religion. He remained inside Judaism. His first followers did too. Peter, Paul, Mary, John, and James, all of them remained part of the synagogue. They did their work from within. But by 60 years later, things were beginning to break down between Jews and Jesus' followers. An exodus of, of sorts seemed to be brewing on the horizon. And Luke is writing into the vortex of that social dilemma. The pressing question of the twilight of Luke's life would have been this, how to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus and remain part of the social fabric of Israel. And Luke offers an answer to this in his own way. It takes him a whole book to sort of get his head around it. It becomes a major motif throughout his gospel. Let me just summarize a few of the hard-edged statements that Luke attributes to Jesus around the subject of family. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is interrupted by his followers. In the middle of doing ministry, he's interrupted and they say, hey, your brother and your sister are outside and they want to talk. And Jesus effectively, in a very surly retort, comes back and says, listen, my only real family are the people who do what I say, therefore implying that they weren't his real family. Then in Luke 12, Jesus says plainly that he has come to bring a sort of division, and he's not talking about between Rome and Israel. He brings a sort of division specifically for the network and the household itself. Then in Luke 13, last week we talked about this, Jesus is invited to a wedding banquet where he tells the host to forget inviting family to events like this. Just invite people who are on the outside who will never be able to repay you. Forget the family. They'll take care of themselves essentially. And then the crowning jewel of Luke's thinking around family, chapter 18, I wonder if you remember, a certain leader of the synagogue approaches Jesus by night with questions about eternal life, to which Jesus seems to announce there would be great recompense in this life and the life to come. Essentially, there's going to be a signing bonus for anyone who's willing to totally abandon their kin. In summary... Luke offers an answer to the burning question of what to do if you're following Jesus and that calls into question your family connection to your Jewish family. And the answer that Luke offers us is simply this, stick with Jesus and reimagine all other attachments. Luke is saying if it came down to it, go with loyalty to Jesus. So when Luke writes his recollections of the life of Jesus, he embeds at least a half dozen of these all-or-nothing statements designed to shock and provoke the reader. You see, wise disciples, Luke would say, make wise and accurate calculations about the cost of following, and that cost would be nothing less than everything. To drive the point today in today's teaching, Jesus uses a couple of metaphors. He talks about a builder and he talks about a king at war both of whom will need to make a full commitment to an outcome, whatever the setbacks may be, and there would be many, lest they be humiliated by their inability to see their project through to completion. So what do we have here, friend? What is the point of all of this? Well, I think it comes down to verse 33. And it reads this way. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. All? Did you catch that little word? Is that even possible? I have an idea. Let's do some work in the original language, shall we? You know what the Greek word pas, which is where we get the word in English, all, you know what that actually means in English? Wait for it. All. As in every component part, every single piece. No nuance here whatsoever. Verse 33, as far as I'm concerned, reads like a summary statement, as if everything that comes before is building up to this. And no wonder he tried a couple of metaphors before he landed the plane. He tried a builder and he tried a king. No wonder he did. This is hard. And I read this passage over and over this week, mostly ignoring this last verse, verse 33. And I think it was at the end of my, my Wednesday morning run when I finally realized how hard I was trying to run away from this idea. And here's why. This is a little autobiographical, so if this makes you feel funny, just check Facebook, I suppose. I have a complicated relationship with possessions. 
We didn't miss a ton of actual meals growing up, but we would have had it not been for food stamps or public assistance or free public food in the public schools. We would have gone hungry often, I think. So I did exactly what little kids do, just like maybe you did. I internalized real terror around scarcity, those white knuckles that grip anything that was my life. It remains my life. It was as if anything I ever got, ever got to have and hold myself, had to be preserved forever because for sure it would be the last one I would ever get. Every pair of sneakers, every everything. You see, possessions mean something if you come from real poverty. They mean safety and security. At least that's how I thought that they would function, or that's what they felt like to me. You see, they allow you to sleep easily knowing, possessions do, they allow you to sleep easily knowing there's going to be a meal tomorrow in the morning. And I don't say this proudly, but it's true. For 15 years, we didn't see doctors or dentists, and it wasn't because we were afraid. That what would we pay a dentist with or a doctor with? I'm just saying, given my history, when I'm told that my possessions may somehow disallow or rule out or in some way impact negatively my qualification to be a disciple, my ears are pricked. This is more than a tiny bit alarming to someone like me. Here's what I've learned, and I wonder if you've learned the same thing. Things possess us. The wanting of them, the having of them, the preserving of them, even the fear of losing them once you get them. You see, possessions possess and just because you don't have things doesn't mean you're free of their power. See, you can as easily be possessed by a thing without having it as you can once it's in your pantry or in your garage. I wonder if you've discovered that. You know, I, I hope that paralyzing materialism isn't a function specific to a socioeconomic status. We are all trained in our society to desire everything, no matter whether we have things or not. So friends, what do we have here? This really isn't a teaching about loving your family members or your love of life or towers or wars or even possessions. This, is a, this isn't even about the subject of hate, as hard as that word is. This is about the struggles related to being possessed by all of these things. There's a word for that in Buddhism. It's called suffering. In the Christian world, we don't use the word suffering in conjunction with desire or craving. It would underdo our whole global economy, but we should you see, the Buddha was right. Unbridled desire equals possession, which is just another word for suffering. To constantly want is to not be at peace. Friend, this teaching isn't about loss or cost or even being embarrassed by half-completed tasks. No, friend, this is about freedom. Jesus just comes right out and says it in plain English, and if I were to summarize this teaching, I would do it this way. You're gonna have a hard time following me if anything else possesses you. You see, you have to be free to accept the kind of freedom that Jesus offers. This is not a condemnation of material things or their accumulation. Some have read it that way, to be sure. Many faithful Christians have taken a lifelong vow of poverty in response to this teaching of Jesus. And I completely respect that. That's one very valid way to interpret what Jesus is teaching about. But it still leaves me wondering, is that the only way to read this hard teaching? To which I would say, probably not. If I'm honest, friends, I think I have worse news for us than a lifelong vow of poverty. I think what Jesus is suggesting is far more difficult even still. I think the point is, people who are possessed or consumed by earthly things will struggle to take full advantage of the freedom that Jesus offers. Why? Well, because his way of life will require all the room we can manage, all the room we can spare for it to grow and thrive and mature which at first honestly feels overwhelming to a scared little boy who's still surviving a childhood pockmarked by scarcity. It feels overwhelming, that is, until I sit with this idea 
And I realize how potentially freeing this might be. At first, to be told to let everything go feels scary. It feels frightening until I realize that the only thing better than having that next highly desired thing or person or experience is living detached from such things altogether. Friends, detachment is the last and the most promising frontier of freedom itself. And it's also the one we know the least about in America. Oh, friend, we were not meant to be possessed by the things that we possess. We were born for freedom itself. We were born to live detached. Discipleship will force us to face this invitation eventually. And I think that's what Jesus is hinting at. So why Jesus? Why is this hard saying good news? Well, if I'm honest with you this morning, I would just tell you I have a very broken relationship with possessions. And I number among my possessions not only the things that I accumulate, but the relationships that I have. And here's the thing. I hang on to them as if my very life depended on it. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't. My life depends on my commitment to something much deeper, as it turns out. My actual life depends on my commitment. Where you are, Mark, but you might want to get ready. Friends, I've spent some time lately going inside deep inside. And I'm not just talking about to the surface. I'm delighted to tell you what I'm discovering is that well past all the things that I clutch and grab and grasp, there is something deeper, something beyond possessions and relationships. Deeper still, there is a me, a sacred me, and there's the same truth for you. And this is the part of me that is being set free, released to fly as it turns out, turned loose against the expanse of endless blue skies by the love of God itself. That's where detachment occurs. That's what discipleship is made of. That's where we can locate it and anchor it. And that's what Jesus still speaks to in me directly. And that's why you'll find me here in these teachings till my final breath, getting free and staying free. Now, sure, as Jesus makes very plain, death, whether figurative or not figurative, will be the way to freedom. Remember, there is a cross mentioned here. Of course, that's what Jesus is going to say. But friends, here's the truth about us. You cannot kill the life of God and that's what animates you. That's what's in you. Death is a doorway to detachment, which is just another word for freedom, which is the point of discipleship.